Previously on Mafia. On the books, Joseph Colombo was a $35,000 a year employee at Cantalupo Realty. In reality, the mafioso was flooded with cash from his numerous rackets and enjoying the good life. Joey liked to dress like the biggest actors, so it was very important about where he bought his shirts, where he had his shoes made, and believe me, he did. He had everything made, everything was tailored. He wanted to be on their equal when he met with uh, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin. Uh, he knew they dressed meticulously, had great clothes, and he wanted to be right there, right alongside them, and he didn't want to look like a schlep. He wanted to be dressed to kill, just like them. Distress grew in the highest circles of the mafia that law enforcement scrutiny would intensify because of Colombo's actions. The new bulls, like Colombo, Colombo was the start of the, it was the start of the Gotti era, where there would be nightclub and running around with pinky rings and a good looking blonde and their arm and a whole routine. Colombo was the type of guy, he was the transition from the old world to the new world when it comes to the mafia. He was the first guy who became flamboyant, i.e. the Italian-American Civil Rights League. That was unbelievably frowned upon by the old line mobsters. And he gained even more attention when he used the growing civil rights movement as retaliation against the FBI. He in effect declared war on the FBI. This is Mafia. Joseph Colombo had exploited the growing unrest in the Italian-American community by claiming discrimination by the United States. He began to suggest that the FBI themselves should be investigated for anti-Italian bias. In early 1970, Colombo shifted his protest movement up a gear by creating the Italian-American Civil Rights League. With Colombo at the helm, the League had huge success almost instantly recruiting 50,000 paying members to its cause. Joseph Wendling was an NYPD detective who focused on the five families. It took off. Everybody wanted to be attached to it. Everybody. I mean, now you see uh, nationality flags. Well, Joe Colombo started it. It was the Italian flag being placed on every Cadillac that was in Brooklyn, owned by an Italian or a Lincoln owned by an Italian. Every car had an Italian flag on it. Everybody bought into it, including the politicians. It was to raise the hopes of the small Italian man to be proud of being Italian and not being associated or not being thought of as a killer or a narcotics dealer. But again, it was just one mafioso taking uh, an advantage of his own nationality for his own benefits. Colombo's league achieved some notable early victories. They took their campaign to the highest echelons of corporate America. Major brands like General Motors and Alka-Seltzer were targeted. Their ad campaigns were considered demeaning to Italian Americans, and the league got them withdrawn. In addition, they successfully had a board game, known as the Godfather game, pulled from Macy's department stores. Even Hollywood felt their wrath. Producers of the film The Godfather started to have trouble filming in New York. Production was threatened by walkouts, obstructions, and delays. The League came to the rescue 
offering to smooth the process if the producers agreed to remove all references to the Mafia, or Cosa Nostra, from the script. Ultimately, filming was allowed to continue uninterrupted. But despite their victories, Colombo's behavior was unacceptable amongst the highly secretive Mafia. Despite the Mafia's secret code, Colombo was desperate to become a public figure. He even got the New York mayor, prosecutors, and the FBI to stop using the term mafia in its official documentation as it was deemed prejudiced. The city was listening to Joseph Colombo, and the league was proven to be highly effective. June 29, 1970. Colombo was ready for the league's showpiece its first Italian-American Unity Day rally to be held in Columbus Circle in the heart of Manhattan. I was assigned to it as a, as a, a young officer, and uh, there was so much press and so many... Uh, the streets were just mobbed with, with people that were so proud of being Italian, and everybody wanted to get up on the, the, the dais to be standing next to Joe Colombo when he spoke of national pride and fellowship. Under the glare of news cameras, 50,000 people attended. New York's Little Italy was deserted. The other mob families reluctantly allowed Italian-American businesses to close for the day in solidarity. He used his organization, his mafia organization, to lean on everybody. It was like, um, if you want to be our friend and say that you're a friend of ours, you'll contribute to the Italian Unity Day uh, campaign. And it, it was important. Everybody wanted to be a part of it. Colombo held the stage and attacked law enforcement. It was a triumph. In the wake of the rally, Colombo was in demand for interviews. He appeared on TV shows and in magazine articles. All the major newspapers, the Daily News, the New York Mirror, uh, the Post, I mean, every newspaper wanted to hear from him because he was the man shouting from the rooftops about Italian pride, Italian unity, and it sold papers. And if you're in the paper business, that's what you want. And they all wanted to talk to him. I, I think everybody was clamoring to get an interview with uh, Joe Colombo. Joe Colombo started it. Joe Colombo gave it birth. Joe Colombo pushed it. Joe Colombo did everything for it, and it took off. Uh, the press greeted it with open arms, and it was tremendous. It was tremendous to see the crowds he turned out, especially for the, the second one. And it was tremendous just to see the, uh, the pride. Publicly, he continued to say the mafia was a myth and he promised to champion the rights of all minorities. Colombo's league had an air of legality. However, under Colombo, the writing was on the wall. Thomas Repetto is the author of Bringing Down the Mob. American Civil Rights League was created by Joe Colombo to mobilize Italians to fight against discrimination. As far as that went, it wasn't a bad idea, but he was the wrong person to be doing something like that. He was the wrong person to be represented as a leader of the Italian-American community. Always the opportunist, 
Colombo was hijacking a legitimate cause to make money for himself. The League proved to be a moneymaker, netting him funds he could appropriate. A very wise state senator here who was an Italian-American said, uh, don't be fooled by Colombo. Colombo actually got the uh, Department of Justice under John Mitchell and the state government under Governor Rockefeller to not use words like Casa Nostra or Mafia. And as that senator said, we think we can eliminate devils by exercising them from the English language. NYPD detective Joe Coffey had suspected the whole thing was a scam and was given a tip-off about the Mafia meeting. Joe Colombo formed the Italian-American Civil Rights as a racket, as a scam to make money, period. And he used it for that purpose. He was shaking down store owners all over Italian neighborhoods forcing them to put his sticker in a window. It was an Italian flag with a one on it, Italian-American Civil Rights League, and he actually was garnering receipts from that. That was an era when a lot of things were upside down in the 60s. Anybody could wave the Civil Rights banner. It was just a, a shield for his activities. Some people took him seriously. Most knew that he was, he, he was not what he claimed to be. Colombo was creating jealousy and suspicion within the Mafia ranks and within his own family. His old mentor, Carlo Gambino, started to warn him that he was playing with fire. I was very dangerous. He was told not to. And he was told by Carlo, stop this. We don't want it. And no ands, ifs, or buts was taken. If you continue, you're going to pay a price. But Colombo was oblivious to any looming danger and thought that his success only warranted reward. One of the codes of the mob is don't make yourself a target. Don't make yourself to go out there and bring attention to you and to our operation, what they call our thing, cause an ostra. Now, Colombo brought attention that was unwanted. He figured he was bigger and better than the unit that he was working with, which was the mafia. And he figured that he could be the capo de tutti capi, which means boss of all bosses. More trouble arose when the FBI struck back. Angered by Colombo's actions, they issued subpoenas for various high-profile bosses. Colombo was arrested along with one of his men, Rocco Maraglia. When police searched his car, they found a briefcase stuffed full of incriminating documents. The documents detailed the various Colombo family rackets. Even worse, they discovered the names of other high-ranking mob men. Colombo was immediately called before a federal grand jury to explain himself. But then he did something utterly unforgivable. Rather than keeping his mouth shut like he had before, he adopted a different tactic. He explained that it was a list of donations. Carl, he explained, was none other than Carlo Gambino, reputed mafia boss. The $30,000 next to his name was actually a donation to the League. You know, you go to, to a pizzeria and you see a cup out, much like you see a Wounded Warriors program. Uh, make a, a campaign through the Italian Unity Day uh, parade. And, and you would. You, you would because, you know, you all right. Yeah, you got, you got the, the bad shake on the deal. Everybody thinks you're killers. So yeah, I'll, I'll make a donation. That's what it was. And like I said, he, he started it, he created it, he pushed it. This was a bad move. The repercussions were immediate. The police department moved in on the mafia. 
Federal strike forces combed the city. Even Carlo Gambino paid the price and was arrested. It was clear that Colombo's loose lips had got him into deep trouble with his former mentor and with the FBI. This uh, incensed the old mafiosa. They didn't want that. They wanted silence. They wanted to stay in the shadows. And Joe was bringing them out. Joseph Colombo's days were numbered. Despite the looming threat of the Mafia, Colombo decided he would roll out the league across America. He even booked Frank Sinatra for a fundraiser at Madison Square Garden. Politicians also joined the cause, including State Governor Nelson Rockefeller. This rally would seal his status as a civil rights activist and keep the forces of law and order at bay. Colombo's old nemesis, Crazy Joe Gallo, was watching events from prison with a critical eye. Joe Gallo was a, a, a real, real thug, I mean, who had uh, the IQ of a mothball. I mean, that's how low he was. I'll give you an example of Joe Gallo's operation. They had a club on President Street in Brooklyn. And in the basement, they had a mountain lion that they used to intimidate victims, meaning gambling victims who owed the money or loan sharking victims. And if somebody didn't pay up, they'd just bring him to the club on President Street, open the door to the basement, and down at the bottom of the stairs would be this mountain lion, ready to, you know, and they would do what they were told. Uh, that was the mentality of Joe Gallo. That is not a fantasy, that's a real thing. I witnessed it myself. Gallo and his brothers, Larry and Albert, were together known as the Gallo clan. The three of them had once tried to take over the Colombo family. In the 1960s, they led a bloody insurrection until Joe Colombo himself brokered a peace deal with Larry and Albert. Meanwhile, Crazy Joe was serving 7 to 14 years in state prison for attempting to extort money from a cafe owner. Now, Crazy Joe was itching to get back at old rival Colombo. There was a book written, written about the Gallo mob called The Gang That Couldn't Shoot Straight by Jimmy Breslin. Perfect that depiction of these people, what morons they were. And they, they had a crew that were easily recognizable around the city. The bottom line is jealousy. Gallo wanted to be the boss of the family, Colombo was the boss of the family, and Gallo wanted to take him out. Simple as that. Gallo needed soldiers for his planned showdown, and he had a novel idea where to find them. Behind bars, he had made contacts and alliances with African-American gangsters from East Harlem. This was something no one in the Mafia had ever attempted. The two groups were traditionally enemies, but Gallo was ahead of his time. He saw that if the two groups worked together, they could be stronger. When he went away to prison, he formed a friendship with a number of African-American gangsters. and He proposed that they set up a black Mafia with himself as advisor. It was actually taken to a vote, but lost among black gang leaders. So by him bringing the blacks in, it was his way of rebelling against the mafia bosses. When he goes to jail, he did big time for a thing that we put him away for, shaking down bars and restaurants in the 60s. He meets and he hangs out with nothing but black people in jail, and they would uh, hobnob together 
and he was a bit of a character. They used to call him Crazy Joe Gallo because he was legitimately crazy. And he befriended all these guys, and when he came out, and the time came we wanted to kill Joe Colombo, and he did it without sanction, he hired Jerome Johnson, a guy he met in jail, to whack Joe Colombo. In February 1971, Gallo was released after nine years in prison. Publicly, he swore his mafia days were over and he renounced his criminal past. But privately, it was business as usual. He was back on the streets, and for him, the peace deal between himself and Colombo was null and void. As far as he was concerned, the war had never been over. He was preparing for a counterattack. It was Columbus Day in the early 70s. They had a huge rally which attracted thousands and thousands of Italian Americans. This was Colombo's rally to rally the Italian people against the FBI and the New York City Police Department and law enforcement in general. They called the American, American, Italian American Civil Rights League. That was their day and it was Columbus Day and uh, they were giving speeches and they had all sorts of dignitaries coming up and politicians who were in their pocket, and judges and all sorts of corrupt creeps. The rally started the same as the other ones. However, something had changed. The other Mafia bosses had instructed Italian-Americans to stay at work because the League was no longer tolerated. 40,000 fewer people turned out. Just before noon, Colombo headed to the podium to speak. He was preparing to launch another stinging attack on the FBI. An African-American news cameraman with press credentials approached. As other journalists got Colombo's attention for a soundbite, the newsman moved forward. Joe Coffey remembers the moment. Lo and behold, up comes this gunman and shoots Colombo in the head. Down he goes, and then Colombo's people kill the guy who shot him. Simple as that. Now, we were a distance away taking pictures and doing intelligence work, taking plate numbers and observing who was there. And uh, that's what we saw. Joe Colombo collapsed to the ground. He may have been in battle with the FBI, but he had failed to realize the civil war he had started amongst his own Mafia family. But Colombo wouldn't be the only person on the Mafia hit list that day. Little did he know an Italian had planned to kill him at that thing, which he thought would never happen. So much so that he didn't have his bodyguards close to him. And the man that shot him was dead before he hit the floor. So there was actually two killings arranged that day. One to have Joe shot, and one to have the shooter killed. So nobody could get traced back, there was just one family. Joe Colombo was immediately rushed to the hospital, alive but comatose. Supporters were at a loss to explain what had happened. The hit on Colombo had been carried out by Jerome Johnson, a man from Harlem, but he was a very unlikely killer. He was a drifter and a petty criminal with a penchant for stalking girls on a nearby university campus. He had no record as a hitman for the mob. It was a curious discrepancy for New York's police department. 
What was puzzling was that someone must have told Johnson to undertake the hit and trained him. The question was, who? The link to Harlem pointed back to Crazy Joe Gallo. Reporters at the time linked Gallo with the hit, but for the police, this was merely conjecture. With Johnson now dead, it was hard to find out who had ordered the hit. First place, you're supposed to have permission of all the other bosses to kill a boss. Uh, that's just simple. But boss, bosses can't allow bosses to be killed without, without the permission of the other bosses. Other than, otherwise, none of them are safe. Many concluded that Gambino had to be behind the hit, that he sold it to the commission and paid Johnson to do his dirty work. The story that's favored by the police department on the Colombo hit is that it probably was either the Gallows or the Gambinos who did that. And that they hired the black man to do it because he could get up close to uh, Colombo without attracting suspicion. I don't know if that's, if that's correct or not, but certainly I, I don't think there was much crying in the Gambino camp or the Gallo camp when Joe Colombo was uh, so seriously wounded. He did have a mysterious background. Remember, Gallo had tried to make an alliance with uh, black leaders, so some people saw Gallo and Johnson as somehow uh, involved? Uh, was Johnson simply set, sent there and set up as the hitman and somebody else fired the shot? Or did he in fact fire the shot and then was killed himself? Who knows? Who knows? Uh, everybody has different stories about that sort of thing. But as so often happens with the Mafia, the events surrounding Colombo went unsolved. There was nothing to pin on Gambino. Eleven months after Colombo's assassination, Colombo's family decided to take revenge on Gallo themselves. Crazy Joe was celebrating his 43rd birthday with family and friends at Umberto's Clam House in Manhattan's Little Italy. Unbeknownst to the group, four hitmen entered through the back door and opened fire. Gallo staggered to the front door, where he eventually stumbled into the street and collapsed. He would die later that day in the hospital. For the FBI and police investigators, the only explanation had to be Colombo family members out for revenge. Coincidentally, Detective Joe Coffey had spotted Gallo earlier in the evening. Joey Gallo himself was murdered on April 7, 1972, in front of Umberto's Clam Bar on Mulberry Street, Manhattan. And he was killed by elements of the Colombo family. It was ordered by a guy named Joseph Iacovelli, Joe Yak. He was the consigli, no, he was the capo in the Colombo family who ordered the hit. And it was carried out by a guy named Carmine uh, DiBiazzi, whose nickname was Sonny Pinto, and a guy named, uh, uh, who was the other shooter? Gambino. But if Colombo's and Gallo's assassinations were supposed to bring stability back to the mafia, they failed. It left both families leaderless and still at war. The Colombo family is now just a shadow of its former self. As of 2011, 125 of its members were arrested and imprisoned. As for Joseph Colombo, none of this mattered. He never recovered from that infamous day at the rally. 
He remained in a coma for seven years. He died in 1978. He died a maverick godfather, a former killer who had dared to do things differently. But by taking on the mafia rules and fighting the FBI at the same time, it was a battle he could never win. For a while, he got away with it. People who should have known better uh, joined his committees. He was using civil rights as a, as a shield. In my opinion, he was the fool. <laughs> Joe Colombo was going against every tenant of the mafia's credo. By being flamboyant, by being out in front, by establishing a group to uh, oppose uh, oppression of the Italian nationality. I mean, it was totally against all, all influence that the mob had through the years. I mean, it really caused them a major problem, and that's why he met his demise. Joseph Colombo's so-called Civil Rights League grew into a national phenomenon. But after his assassination, the movement virtually disappeared overnight. Colombo's first mistake and lasting mistake was forming the Italian-American Civil Rights League. It was the direct cause of his demise. It was the direct cause. If he wasn't shot and killed, he would have been absolutely ostracized by the rest of the mob. He would have been, they had to kill him to get rid of him because he brought too much attention to the family, the Colombo family itself, and also the rest of the commission. He had to go, period. Mafia is an audio boom and world media rights co-production hosted by me, Fleet Cooper. It is produced by Audio Boom's Rachel Jacobs, Casey Georgie, Blair Payton, and Karen Bevan, and by Pascal Hughes for World Media Rights. We had additional production help from World Media Rights by Gerald Zabingua and James Tyndale. David McNabb is the series' creative director, and the executive producers for Audio Boom are Brendan Reagan and Stuart Last. Thanks to Lightstream for sponsoring this episode. Follow Mafia on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. <laughs>